heavily, I'm a clown. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Guys, welcome to the show. The current time okay. in Can Moscow you guys hear us? is test, one, test, test. 1685. Right? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah, it's, it's 1,685 um, min- minutes. Oh, military time. Okay. Okay. Yes. okay, so they should have audio now. All right, guys. Well- Speaking about 1,969, um, I heard something really cool happened in that year <laughs> about some, some really large bills. You were you were digging into the other day, Colin. Wait, what kind of segue was that? <laughs> Speaking of sixteen eighty five. Wait, no. So before we before we get into that, we have a we have a guest oh. question. Somebody was tweeting at me on Twitter. I'll read the question to you, and we can we can start start off with this because this is a good icebreaker for the Bitcoin echo chamber. So he says, heavily armed C. Let me try to understand the Bitcoin maxi position. Question number one: Is Bitcoin Cash a shitcoin? Question number two, if yes to number one, would it be a shitcoin if it had the network effect of Bitcoin? And question number three, if yes, why? Um, yeah, I don't even know where to start with this one, man. Yeah, so I thought about this a little bit because I was reading it before we started. So um, I'll start off by saying that yes and no. So, or, or rather, yes and. Is Bitcoin Cash a shitcoin? Yes. If yes, would it be a shitcoin if it had the network effect of BTC? Yes, and here's why. Because Bitcoin Cash is using linear block size increases, granting a linear increase in transaction throughput, which is growing the block size at probably a faster rate than we'd want to grow it now, right? I mean, so what what is Bitcoin Cash's long-term plan to continue to scale? To, to continue to increase the block size as it's needed to support transaction throughput on the main chain, right? The entire uh, premise of, of distribution of the nodes in Bitcoin, what keeps it, what helps keep it decentralized as a network is the ability of anybody to download a full copy of the blockchain from start to finish and verify every single transaction from the Genesis block up until the transaction that just happened in the last 10 minutes. If you can't do that, then you're not a sovereign individual on the network. The network isn't sovereign because it's maintained by a small group of people who have the um, institutional-grade hardware to be able to run the nodes that can validate full copies of the blockchain. It has nothing to do with the network effect. <laughs> well, it has a little bit to do with the network effect. I mean, certainly BT, uh, Bitcoin Cash is more of a shitcoin because it has a pretty shitty network effect and it has way less hash power and it has you know way less development and way, le- way less liquidity and way less adoption. Uh, and all those things factor into it, but the design decisions are ultimately probably why they lost in the marketplace. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I don't. I don't really want to spend time on Bitcoin Cash. <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to open up the stream with that because we haven't. We don't. We don't have to spend too much more time on that. But I, I wanted to hit on that point because um, I think that there's probably a lot of new people coming into the market. I was just talking to a okay. neighbor about this last night. That's he fair. wanted to know like why Bitcoin, why not V Chain? Yeah, I mean the decentralization is key, right? And why is the decentralization? decentralization key because it has to be hard to all actors right if you if you have a monetary system that's underlying our society it has to be uncorruptible and a completely you know uncontrollable by any party including a state level actor and a state level actor is the most powerful actor so in order to achieve that what bitcoin's 
real innovation was, was the decentralization. And what enforces the decentralization is the network of nodes. And, and, and these, are, these are not simple concepts to understand. It's people, people really have to figure this stuff out for themselves and dig into all these topics. But, um, you know, you have to do that, right, to, in order to understand Bitcoin and in order to, you know, benefit from the adoption of Bitcoin to be an early adopter while there's still some, some risk, you know, so to speak, uh, in its being in an earlier phase, then you have to actually do this work for yourself. The other two snippets I would add, and this is what I was telling my neighbor last night, um, Bitcoin is not trying to be a, a payments network. So it, it is a payments network, but um, on the surface, that that's sort of a deceptive way to look at it. It's a final settlement network for a self-sovereign, self-clearing global bearer asset. It is a base layer settlement. We, we can handle you know, infinitely higher magnitudes of output of transactions on higher order layers that will settle back to the base layer of Bitcoin. All of this can be built out on top of Bitcoin. So this idea of trying to scale um, your transaction throughput at the base layer sort of breaks the concept. Um, you, you might as well just go back to like a, a database and, and do everything with one person managing like a MySQL database or something like that. And uh, Oh, and, the, and then the other thing I wanted to touch on is that uh, people still don't get this. Like, I'm, I'm taking a coding course right now called Lambda School, and some kid kept asking in the orientation, he kept bugging the instructors, like, why aren't we learning about blockchain? Why aren't you teaching us about blockchain? And the short answer was because blockchain is terrible for everything. Like, quite literally, it just is, it doesn't, it's a worse technical stack for almost any problem that you can imagine, except for coincidentally money, the thing that it was designed for, the problem that it was designed to solve, which was the double spend problem um, in software. Other than that, like a blockchain is pretty much useless. And if I'm not wrong, I think that that's what VeChain tries to do. It's like a supply chain, blockchain data thing. I don't know. We, we just had an email, Ben, from someone who wants to build a blockchain software solution for our company. For our um, man, that's going to be yeah. It's really going to increase our efficiency. I think. I, I, I mean, I, it's basically my, the future. I don't want to get left behind, dude. My my biggest thing that I always like to mention when you're like, oh, do I need a blockchain for this? The the problem is that all blockchains need a monetary token to incentivize the mining, and they need a native monetary token to incentivize the mining, and that that token uh, has to have some kind of value, right? Otherwise, what are you? You're not incentivizing and every single monetary token is competing with bitcoin and bitcoin wins so your blockchain loses and if your ledger isn't distributed amongst a, a vast number of the participants in the network it's not immutable because it can still just be changed by whoever's running the ledger and, and then at that point you're just using a pretty dysfunctional database to store information that you could just stick into a spreadsheet if you really wanted to uh, and the whole idea of using a blockchain on to fix a supply chain problem um, is even more silly because you, you still have the same problem of getting the good from point A to B to C to D to E. Um, just because you put information into, quote unquote, the blockchain doesn't mean that that information was true or valid at every single point in that supply chain. It's right. no different There's than any other system that tracks anything. There's an oracle problem along every single step of that path. And also, it blockchains aren't inherently immutable that's an emergent property that comes out of a properly distributed uh, blockchain okay so enough nerd stuff yeah let's get into the good stuff <laughs> you want to you want to talk about this yeah let's talk about that man that was really interesting so jw actually brought this to my attention he reminded me about this and i i remember i was a kid i i had somewhere i probably still got it it's probably in a book somewhere i have a bookmark and it's like a ten thousand dollar bill it's not real, obviously, but um, I always thought it was cool because like, I always looked at it and I thought, wow, imagine having that much money in one bill. Um, so, But it turns out, and I had tweeted about this, I think I tweeted about this on the WTF1971 account, that in 1969, they discontinued the $500 bill, the one, th no, not the $500 bill, one of them they didn't, the $1,000 bill, the $5,000 bill, and the $10,000 bill. Um, during an event called the, essentially they, they recall, well, so from my understanding, these weren't necessarily issued for circulation for the average person to use. They were mostly used, um, for settlement of between central banks. Um, with the exception of, I think the $500 bill, I think was people were allowed to use. 
Was the uh, is the modern day equivalent of it that trillion dollar platinum coin they minted? It's, it's got to be. I mean, when you factor in the inflation, like a ten thousand dollar bill from nineteen sixty nine is basically a trillion dollar platinum coin. So why? What, what you found that I, I thought was really interesting is that it was in 1969 specifically that these things got um, demonetized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just just for... Um, well, and it, funny enough, after they demonetized them, now they're worth more than their face value. <laughs> <laughs> um, what did you find as the implication of the 1969 year? Um, I don't know that there's anything really all that spectacularly significant about 1969 other than the fact that it was right before you know 1971 when all this crazy stuff started happening and in particular 1970 i think it was either 1970 or 1971 when they instituted um what was it the bank secrecy act oh yeah it was right around there where where they established that ten thousand dollar reporting threshold for any um transactions in and out of a financial institution by a client. It basically required certain amounts of paperwork uh, to be filed on behalf of the bank. Now, interestingly, that $10,000 figure fits in quite well with the $10,000 bill that they had banned. Um, And they banned it, you know, saying what they always say, well, we're too afraid of money laundering. Like, we won't be able to control um, movements, illicit movements of currency uh, between banks and individuals. Um, I have a modern-day equivalent of that. Um, This is a... 500 rupee note um india um so this got demonetized uh, i want to say two or three years ago and uh they they had they, they claimed the same reason colin they were saying oh you know money laundering and stuff like that um really i i, I think they're worried about people just holding all their wealth in their under their mattress and stuff so they right. um but but uh this 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 bill is really famous because as it got demonetized um these people were waiting in lines at banks for days to transfer them to money that wasn't going to be demonetized and like there's stories of like people dying waiting in the lines for um to try to get their their currency that was still good i talked about that with rahan qureshi do you remember that episode that was like a few years oh, ago yeah yeah i had him on he was talking that was, about how crazy that was the one that the was. audio was kind of weird right yeah yeah the guy yeah. from india nice guy um so the other thing too is that 1970 when they instituted this bank secrecy act and they made the threshold reporting threshold ten thousand dollars back then that was a lot of money that was like more than the average net worth of the average american um nowadays that's still probably more than the average net worth of the average american but the real or the 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 nominal value stayed the same so through inflation the real value of that reporting threshold has just continued to get smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's dramatically increased the regulatory burden placed on these institutions that have to do all this reporting um, to be in accordance with the Bank Secrecy Act. Due to due to inflation, essentially, we're chasing this number, which I mean, I guess they could they could lower it every or they could raise it every year, but they they're not right. It's in, inflation is creeping up and and, and t- like putting more burden on the on the institutions as you said but also um you know kind of destroying our privacy as well man i would love to get my hands on like one of those thousand dollar bills and like walk into a grocery store and try to pay for something with it (laughs) have you ever done that with like a two dollar bill uh there's a there's a story of my family um of my uncle who uh, at some point went and got um you know an entire sheet of one dollar bills and he he like he had to cut them out with a paper cutter and then he stacked them up and he and he put them on a piece of cardboard and cut that out to the same size and then he painted rubber cement on the top of it and what it he created was this little pad brick no no a pad and he'd go to the store and they'd say that would be you know seven dollars he said seven okay and he whipped them off the pad like a pad of paper and give it to the clerk and you should like they were like the face of these clerks were like uh is this and they look at it you know imagine paying with the whole sheet you know you get like a hundred dollars here you go yeah so you're gonna have to cut that out. Sorry, I've got scissors if you need them. <laughs> All right, what else did we have to talk about? Monopoly money, um, sam samurai. <laughs> oh, oh dude, Gosh. samurai and wasabi and and uh, man. And- All right, so for those of you that don't know that you're listening. Um, well, first of all, let me say that I've had samurai blocked on Twitter for a long time now. Um, those dudes sketch me out. I don't know what their deal is. 
I don't know if they're bad actors. I don't know if they're um, saboteurs. I don't know what's going on. I, I don't really care, frankly. But I do see a lot of damage um, in the in the Bitcoin privacy space, and I attribute it to their behavior uh, that turns a lot of people off from wanting to participate. Um, I know it turns me off. I know it makes me not want to get involved in any of that crap. But so Samurai tweeted from their official Twitter account that uh, Bitcoin Core is anti-privacy on the base layer, um, which I think is a bit of a misattribution, even if that might be um, maybe true in a way. It's true for a reason, and, and it's because the audibility of the main chain is of primary importance to its value proposition, which is the fact that it has a limited deflationary currency supply. Um, if you were to make, you know, if you were to pull a Monero, suddenly you make that chain, the, the audibility of that circulating supply practically impossible. Right, and and some have speculated even that I mean they they kind of even came out and not openly endorsed Monero, but they did say, uh, well, Monero's better in some cases or something like that. This is the the first time we've seen like I think Samurai really like pushing Monero as an alternative, which is is kind of sad in my opinion now because of all the other trade offs that Monero makes. I said that it was kind of true what they said, but that's actually wrong. And we know that that's wrong because if you're subscribed to the BitDevs mailing list, you know that they've done nothing but talk about Taproot output activation for like the last two months. And Taproot is going to be a dramatic improvement for privacy. So there's no way Bitcoin Core is anti-privacy if all this time and energy is going into uh, implementing Taproot. And, and Taproot does improve privacy. It doesn't it doesn't get you to Monero levels of privacy. The, 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 there's still something that people can track as far as what goes where. But but Taproot is a path to a lot more privacy, in my opinion, um, because I think eventually once you get Taproot and then Schnorr signatures, and I know people are working on uh, cross-input signature aggregation, that would be a huge privacy improvement. So uh, again, this kind of goes to the whole time high time preference um, shitcoin version of trying to solve a problem versus the uh, slow, steady, and very deliberate um, Bitcoin core uh, approach to uh, attacking problems and, um, and and scaling the network. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, and I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I wish we had perfect private digital cash today, too. Um, but we're not there yet. And I don't think... I don't think Monero is a good substitution for a lot of reasons. Um, in particular, the fact that the, you're still going to have to come in and out of that chain at some point. Um, and yeah, I guess maybe atomic swaps or something like that might might be able to solve that problem. But you're still swapping in and out of this illiquid but, I mean, protocol. Monero has all sorts of other problems, right? I mean, yeah, maybe you just use it to, to transact really quickly, but then why don't you just use Liquid, right? Or, or why don't you just use Lightning right. um, or something like that? And I mean, Monero goes through all these hard forks every six months, um, which is, to me, really not decentralized. They're, they're also trying to be um, ASIC resistant, which I think is horrible for your proof of work network because um, then you're constantly changing the algorithm. There's no built up capital and skin in the game for um, for miners. So I mean, it's, it's a it's a complex, nuanced understanding of why Monero is a shitcoin. It's a lot easier to fifty one percent attack too. Right. Exactly. So what else? Do Do you want to talk about Lex Friedman? What do you think about old Lex? Um, I mean, I can, I can briefly discuss it. Um, I think did Lex you, is, whoa, uh, did you watch his interview with Nick Carter? No, I didn't. Dude, it's, it's, it's pretty I, good. I, yeah. I, I'll be honest. Like I don't really have any opinions about Lex Friedman. Cause I didn't know who he was until Bitcoin Twitter started ripping him apart, which is honestly the case with me for like a lot of people. <laughs> like I have no idea who they are until like Bitcoin Twitter is either, um, praising them or jumping <laughs> down their throat. So <clears throat> I don't know. I, I kind of got the impression that like he was really arrogant, just based on the way he was being presented on Twitter. But like he did yeah. not seem that way at all in his interview with Nick Carter. Like he was very open. He just wanted to have a discussion. He asked a lot of very good questions. Uh, he was really open to everything Nick had to say. Like I, I, I don't know. He doesn't seem bad to me. 
I think he's a, a very agreeable person. Um, I think, you know, kind of in a, like a Joe Rogan sense, you know, Joe Rogan gets somebody on their podcast. Yeah. He'll push back on a few points, but in general, like, I feel like if Joe Rogan got on a socialist and the mm-hmm. socialist went through everything, he'd be like, Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. And then yeah. if he got on like immediately the next episode, a libertarian, he'd be like, Oh, okay. I can see where yeah. you're going with that. Right. It, it, it's kind of like that. That's a good um, point. But, but I will commend Lex on getting Nick on because that was, probably one of the better people he could talk to they're both on the same level nick is one of the most brilliant bitcoiners um that i i can think of so uh hats off to him i can't wait to see the interview nick gave him gave him uh, an open dime and one of his fud dice so they awesome. spent the episode kind of talking through the fud dice which i think actually that's a really great way to like frame um a, a conversation with someone who's like new to bitcoin is just to just hand them one of those fud dice because then they're like oh what is this oh it's a it's a dice that sort of pokes fun at the fact that all of the major criticisms of bitcoin can be kind of algorithmic algorithmically mapped to this what is it like 12 sided or whatever it's it's kind of hilarious for for a new person to see because then they're immediately sort of like oh wait maybe my criticisms aren't that new yeah, the the idea behind them was that <laughs> there's so many reporters reporting on Bitcoin that haven't done more than like very surface level um, understanding, uh, reading about Bitcoin. Like most of them, they're just reading each other, right? It's like this circle jerk of like um, <laughs> of these different reporters like reading each other's like terrible takes. So Nick, who's like, hey, I'll just I'm gonna help you, uh, you journalists out, um, and I'm gonna create these fud dice so that you know the next time you're writing an article, you can just roll the dice and pull up the next thing is um you know no ceo right like that's that's fud somehow or tether the tether fud right which is uh look luckily died down and it's like he's gonna save them some time because they can just pull up one of these and they can write an article about that piece of fud but i will say this like you know and again like i don't know lex friedman so we kind of have this tendency to um berate people that want to come into bitcoin and, and tell us what's up just it's just like an autoimmune response it's natural it's like the white blood cells of bitcoin just converge and attack right but um and i think that that's a good thing like and i don't think i think lex is being a little baby when he comes on and makes statements about how we need to be more loving and tolerant um that's just not that's just not how this works like if you and the because the funny thing is if you engage a bitcoiner with genuine curiosity or with humbleness they're gonna spend probably the next two weeks of their life all of their free time trying to help you understand especially if you're asking good questions and you're genuinely interested like i know ben and i have done it and i can be toxic on twitter but like if i get someone like hitting me up in the dms that are just like asking me good questions and like hey dude i want to know more about bitcoin i will bend over backwards to help that person understand whatever they don't understand um so it's it's, <laughs> it's sort of like it's sort of like a play almost in a way, like on the front, you know, it's sort of like this big show that we put on this toxic thing, but really more so it's, it's an autoimmune response reaction to these people that come in, you know, the George Selgins that come in and they're basically like, respect my authority. And we're like, no, the Cato Institute is smelly and dead. Yeah. I've just heard about Bitcoin and I'm here to fix it. <laughs> the space ghost meme. There it is, right? Do you have there. shareability on your screen? Okay, cool. I've just heard about Bitcoin, and I'm here to fix it. Oh well, where is it? Right there. Nice. This classic. is yeah, and it's a classic. It's it's one we see a lot because you know, uh, because of these FUD articles that we're talking about, right? You see a lot of folks um, come in and, and read a few of these articles and say, oh, well, yeah, but Bitcoin's not going to work because um, it's A, it's boiling the oceans. Um, B, Tether, right? The Tether uh, is a problem. C, there's no CEO, right? So like, I, I just heard about Bitcoin. So all we need to do is we need to make it not have proof of work mining. We need to give it a CEO. And, you know, so it's like, these these folks have done you know a lot of these debates were settled um in 2012 on the bitcoin talk forums and uh and and people don't care to do that reading and they come into bitcoin and and come in from places of um from understanding a lot of, about the rest of the world or maybe expertise in their certain subject area uh, subject matter but understanding bitcoin as um if you haven't seen our episode on the the bitcoin spectrum where we go through all of the different um 
disciplines and, and um, that they're required to understand Bitcoin and how they are so interdisciplinary um, that, that I, you know, I like to try to distill it down to this uh, concept of crypto economics, which I got from um, Eric Voskuhl, but it's, it's understanding how all of these disciplines interact and, 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 and create um, and forge what Bitcoin really is today. Uh, that is, is non-trivial, I think. Yeah. It's not enough just to be a software developer and it's not enough just to be a guy who read Rothbard, in my opinion, like, you you've gotta you've gotta be willing to dive down the multidisciplinary rabbit hole, so to speak. And I'm not I'm definitely like no expert in all of those things. I probably have a cursory understanding at best of cryptography. I'll tell you that right now. So what else we got? Vaccine passports, Ben. What do you think about vaccine passports? Yeah, I mean I can't wait for them. It's going to be great. It's it's going to I think it's going to usher in utopia actually. <laughs> because no one will ever get sick anymore. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, I saw a video the day where somebody was on, I think it was Tucker, um and and they were like, "Man, we we really got to before these states open up, we really got to um get everybody to get vaccinated now because once the states open up, there's no carrot to get vaccinated." And it's just like in my head, it's just like uncomfortable silence it's like oh man I, I think it was on cnn where they were basically like you know um if people want their pre-pandemic freedoms back th- they're gonna have to comply with this oh my god and there was those propaganda videos of like people like like rapping about how how vaccines are good and tr- you should trust us right that is the most cringy shit like we're gonna look back at that in like 15 years and it's gonna look like some of those educational music videos from like the 90s or something and listen, like, if you want to get the vaccine and you've done the risk analysis and you've done the d- diligence on the vaccine and the trials and everything and you want to get it to protect yourself, that's fine. But, like, forcing people to take a vaccine uh, just to, like, move around the country or, or I don't know. letting your desire for other people to get vaccine Trojan horse in this idea of um, papers that you have to carry with you everywhere to validate your ability to leave your house that is some fucked up stuff right there, man. That's that's some George Orwell stuff. 1984 was not an instruction manual, folks. Um, but really, what I think what you'll see is you won't you won't see that being you'll see that be enforced with like financial censorship. So really, this will probably just accelerate Bitcoin adoption because um, you'll have to be providing your um, vaccine paperwork to do all kinds of things like open your bank account buy food at the grocery store i could totally see that happening i totally see them fitting it into the whole financial um what would you call it hydra surveillance surveillance state yeah man the 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 world the financial world is a dystopian world without bitcoin um you know the coming cbdc's and 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 uh I, I I don't know. I just I can't I can't imagine what life would be like if we didn't have Bitcoin right now. Even the deplatforming off of like social media. Imagine like you're getting deplatformed off of Twitter because you didn't upload your vaccine passport. Terrifying to verify your identity. Hey, um, you found this chart recently. Um, I wanted to briefly touch on it. Um, I I think this is one of the most interesting charts we've seen. Uh in regards to 1971, um, that uh, is, is like poorly understood. Um, the annual rate of growth of world population um, had been increasing uh, for quite some time. And then since the 1900s, it started exploding with the technological revolution. Um, and in <laughs> exactly 1971, right here, um, boom, it drops off a cliff this is absolutely staggering. This is like the growth of our world, right? Um, it's just, just gone, right? Like what, what the fuck happened? Did, did you have anything to add to this there? I mean, I really don't, man. Um, you seem to be more enthralled with this than I am. Like, yeah, I, I see it. And I think it's, it's certainly interesting. Um, you, do you blame all of this on, you know, our, our typical problem cause? problem child i don't see what else it would be right 
1968 says right there. Hmm. It was it was the demonetization of those bills, maybe. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was the ten thousand uh, dollar. No, nobody could have the ten thousand dollar bill anymore. Interesting. No, that's that's I, crazy, dude. I just think I think the growth of our society. It's it's kind of like the energy chart, right? Uh, the growth of our society uh, is uh, is is dependent on the technologies and and the organization of our society and the specialization and our ability to provide for folks and um, folks to have sound enough life um, in order to be able to start a family and, and prospects for the future and all that and uh, and I think the the dramatic if it was a slow you know if it's like oh you know like maybe third you know third world countries are, are expanding rapidly and then as you get like um you know like a more developed country like maybe they don't need to ex expand as rapidly they're you know they're a little bit more understanding of like you know starting a, a sound family versus just like having as many kids as possible so you can see that kind of drop off but the just the dramatic kind of you know shift in in the growth of our our, our population I, I found i found fascinating hmm I mean, it's for sure. So, so I'm looking at the comments here, and one of the commenters says, "More population, not a good thing. Come to India, and you will see why." Um, and to a degree, like I can understand where he's coming from there. Um, however, what you don't want is in in your society, and, and so like on a global scale. Like, keep in mind, we're looking at the global data here. On a state basis you might see some nations are growing some nations are shrinking like japan has a it's like a negative birth rate i think their population is actually shrinking and that doesn't bode well for the long-term prospects of uh, of a society because it, it displays a lot of warning indicators and potential long-term tail effects on uh the flourishing of your uh, society's economic future. If your society is shrinking and growing smaller, well, then that probably means that it's going to be less prosperous in the future than it is today. And that, that's not a good thing. And I can understand, I can certainly sympathize um, that maybe some places are facing issues with population density. You know, I, I can't imagine, I've, I've never been to Delhi. And I can't, I can't imagine. Um, I, I've definitely... But on a global basis, you know that you you don't really want to see that type of divergence in in growth because it's signaling um, that people are not able, either not not optimistic about the future or just simply not able to satisfy enough of their immediate demands to be able to um, bring children into the world. Yeah, a hundred percent, man. You nailed it. Let's talk about the let's talk about the tweet that I had about the the hyperinflation of the dollar and unit of account. I really right. want to get into this. Oh, I want to get into this and I really want to get into price inflation because I think just I think price inflation. I've I've made the determination that price inflation is completely immeasurable and useless. Absolutely. Uh, I've been I've been talking about this for for years now. <laughs> um you can't you can't measure prices in aggregate. Um, all prices are, are constantly changing, right? And different people spend money on different things, right? So like Colin's rate of inflation will be different than mine because he buys different things than I do, right? Um, so trying to measure them all with like a basket of goods, you're you're measuring the basket for a very specific group of um, people. Um, uh, and it, it, it isn't useful also because... They they claim that the you know the Federal Reserve is just is aiming to have price stability um, and price stability isn't desirable right falling prices are desirable um, so you know this it, it's just completely stupid in my opinion there's no way to track it what you, if you want to track inflation you should be tracking monetary inflation which is also very difficult to do on the uh, on the proof of stake system that is the Federal uh, Federal Reserve dollar. There's two things that I would point to here. Um... One is when Mises talks about um, subjective value in human action and when Rothbard talks about the margin uh, utility of value in man, economy, and state. The reason that those two things are so important to understand why price inflation is a useless index is because um, Mises said that you can never know whether a man will prefer A over B or, you know, a plus B over C, or A 
and minus b over c because okay, there's an infinite number of different circumstances where your marginal utility of value hierarchy changes based on certain circumstances so let me give you like an example like let's say i wanted to build like a, a new table for my dining room uh, and i intend to build it out of mahogany you know this nice beautiful red wood and the price of wood goes up so much that i can no longer afford that table well, now that's going to change my value hierarchy on that decision-making process. I might decide, well, if I can't have that table, I'm going to build one out of oak. Or I might decide I'd rather have no table at all. Or I might decide to buy one that's made out of plastic. Or I might decide to buy two made out of plastic. Since I can't have the one good one, I'll get two made out of plastic and put them in a different location. There's an, a quite literally an infinite number of ways that... Um, Changing prices changes an individual's uh, utility of value hierarchy on an infinite number of points um, vertically in in the system all across you know the horizontal distribution of individuals across the society. So the idea that I increased the monetary base by twenty five percent and it made the price of lumber go up by thirty percent, and therefore there's like a measurable basis of price inflation there is absurd because what you can never know is um, how the changes in purchasing power changes the individual's preferences from, from person to person across society. Yeah, um, this often manifests itself in, in shrinkflation. I think that's kind of what you're alluding to there, Colin, um, that you know that the price of something can remain the same, but the quality of the goods that go into it can decline. Um, so this is one of the many reasons why you can't measure prices. And, and they claim that through these hedonic adjustments that they're constantly adjusting this basket to try to incorporate this information is, is, is absolutely insane because in order to, I mean, in order to do that, it, it's almost a subjective um, uh, situation in order to be able to decide which, which prices are going up, which prices are going down. It's, it, it just stop trying to measure prices and, and look at the monetary supply because you know, the other argument that I always make is that these prices should be going down. We should, in general, be getting better at making things. We improve material science. We improve, we improve processes. Um, we, we improve, we, we, we do entire revolutionary new ways to make things all the time. We're not doing that to make them more expensive. We're not doing that to make them the same amount of expensive. We're doing that to make them cheaper so we can compete. Uh, so that, you know, to, to, try to, to try to measure that, is impossible because you can't know at what rate that's happening, uh, and and they're they're targeting this nominal um, increase when there should be a nominal decrease, right? It's it, it's almost impossible to convince these people because they've never really tried to think about what the world could look like with a fixed supply of money. It's really fun to try to just like you know even if they're not Bitcoiners, be like okay, well just picture the world with a fixed supply of money, right? What does the GDP tell you then? And they're like, huh, well. It, um, it doesn't really tell you anything because the GDPs would, would probably be pretty much the same every year, right? And this is what inspired my tweet because I, I, so what I said was everybody feels like they're getting rich because the dollar is hyperinflating against all of their assets. So they look at, you know, you can throw a dart at a dartboard right now and you're going to make money. You're going to make dollars. Right, but it's a broken unit of account because it's inflating in most cases faster than people's wealth is appreciating and whatever assets they're holding. If you're not beating the the monetary base inflation rate, you're losing. This is what people don't understand. Your economic calculation method is broken. Your unit of account is not a good measuring stick. Your assets are hyperinflating in dollars, but they are hyper deflating in Bitcoin. This is a very important point. People will not realize this because they're so distracted by how quote-unquote rich they're getting in all of these other assets that are hyper-deflating priced in Bitcoin. Look at the price of Bitcoin. Most things have hyper-deflated in the last decade against Bitcoin. Yeah, and Colin, there's there's a there's a chat. Um, somebody in the chat here mentioned that they're a believer in non-consumerism, um, and and like I, I, it sounds like they're pointing to. The fact that people are buying all this cheap plastic crap, but if your if your dollar is or your ruby or whatever it is is 
hyperinflating against these assets, you're more and more incentivized to get rid of the dollars and, and pick up things. And you can actually see this happening in Venezuela. Uh, I always use Venezuela as this proxy for um, understanding an extreme end and then like bringing it back to like where we are that that what's really happening in, in, in every other country is that same process in slow motion. But in Venezuela, when you get paid for the week, right, they get weekly paychecks, they have to buy all of their shit that same day. If they don't, they lose all of the value of the money, right? Um, so obviously that's not the case in the United States or Europe or something like that, but, um, it, it is still happening to a degree that, you know, if I don't buy my stuff this year, uh, in, in four or five years, I've, I've already lost like half of my value. So I'm incentivized to get rid of the dollars, right? I'm incentivized not to save money, not to hedge against uncertainty. And, and that drives the consumerism, the cheap plastic crap, um, as, as I believe Pierre Richard calls the high velocity trash economy or is that Matt Odell? <laughs> yeah. I can't remember uh, the high that's, velocity that's trash economy. It is Pierre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got another one on the list. Can we, can we do this one? Sure. Oh man. I love it. <laughs> First of all, if you guys don't follow this account, they're just absolutely crushing it. Look at this. This, this account was at like, like 50 K followers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely I thought we insane. were geniuses. <sighs> Apparently not. <laughs> But look at this. Uh, so what does this show here? Um, Goldman Sachs denies Bitcoin as an asset class in May 27th, 2020. May 27th, 2020. This is a year ago. Okay. Denies Bitcoin as an asset class. Well, what's this here? Hmm. Let's see. Oh, it looks like they're going to be offering Bitcoin digital assets. Okay. Uh, and if you dig into this article, you'll find it's because of customer demand. It's not because they're reversing their position because they did all the research and they've decided Bitcoin's. It's just everybody's just asking for it. And they can't they can't deny the reality anymore. That they're, Bitcoin... they're a business. Yeah. <laughs> this is amazing, folks. This is this is a hyper Bitcoinization happening right before our eyes. No, the banks will never let it happen, man. The banks <laughs> will never let Bitcoin happen. They'll stop it. It, Morgan Stanley too, didn't they just recently start? With they're this all thing? they're they're just dominoes, dude. You know, it's like this in news like this in 2017 would have like doubled the price, right? Probably. Just du just straight double the oh Goldman Sachs. This today it's just dominoes. You're like oh Goldman Sachs, yeah that makes sense, right? Morgan Stanley, oh okay sure. So speaking of price, I think it sure it sure seemed like the whole conversation that we had last week on the options expiry was was pretty spot on man i don't know i mean we we pretty much when the weekend was over we climbed close back up to all-time high i'm i'm pretty convinced that that options expiry last week um was bearish because someone was suppressing the price on purpose till the expiry happened so i mean i don't i don't really like talking about the price but uh, there is if you're gonna look at the price a few things you gotta do folks one you gotta zoom out okay you gotta zoom out right here Right, and then you gotta you can hit this this button, the log button, and you can see a lot more data that way. But there's another thing you should be watching um, because the price of the dollar is just not useful, right? Uh, it is a hyperinflating fiat money. It is irrelevant. What what I've been watching is this guy right here, Bitcoin versus gold market cap. Bam, ten percent, ten percent, folks. Uh, they they said, oh, but you know, gold has five thousand year history, guys. It, you know, this Bitcoin's not going to unseat it as money. Uh, this year, it went from uh, less than one percent to ten percent. This year, you know, so uh, yeah, that's this is the price I'm watching. Who cares about the the shitcoin U.S. dollar price? That's incredible, man. <laughs> that's incredible. What's what's blowing my mind is how gold has been so bearish. Like I, oh, yeah. like don't get me Just... wrong. Like you know, I'm I've been one of these guys that's been standing up for the longest time. And looking at like the the Dan Tapieros in the face and saying no, your asset is going to be demonetized, and you're wrong. And they get they get all butthurt and say, oh no, gold and Bitcoin can coexist as assets. Um, and I'm like, no, you're wrong. Gold is going to lose all of its monetary premium, and you're going to get wrecked. And I didn't expect it to happen this fast. Here's here's it happening, guys. Look, <laughs> that's insane, dude. The fact that, that gold is, let me look at gold priced and hyperinflating dollars real quick. Down 8.76% YTD. Just this year. 8%. In hyperinflating dollars. Down. 
Not up, guys. It's down. Peter Schiff's guys, we like I don't know if anybody's reached out to Peter Schiff, but we we I mean he might need a shoulder to cry on. He might need a suicide hotline. I'm not sure. For just uh, ten Satoshis a day, you can help <laughs> save Peter Schiff. I don't have a graphic for that. In the arms of an all right, we, we need to like... show River because we forgot last time. Ooh, yeah. Um, if you guys don't know about River, and if you're in the U.S., most states, not every state yet, but they're getting there. Uh, if you're outside the U.S., I'm sorry. You're going to have to wait. Hopefully, we'll see a international River clientele basis soon, um, but not yet. Uh, River is a Bitcoin brokerage that, in our opinion, is probably the best way to buy and sell Bitcoin. Um we, we've spent a lot of time talking with the guys over at River. We love their mission. We love their product. They were one of the first brokerages that I know of to in, implement Lightning. And, like, people are sleeping on these guys. Like, nobody is paying attention to River. They're real quiet. Their heads are down. They kind of keep to themselves. But they have a phenomenal service basis. I mean, it, it is just incredible, like, the product that they're building and some of the plans that they have for the future. Like, they are, they are really crushing it. Alex is a really cool guy. Um, anybody who is in where is he again san francisco at least he hosts like a local bit devs meet up there i was trying to find out where where they're offered but if you guys use our link river.com slash bec you'll get uh your first week of buy and sell orders with zero fees so you should go check it out yeah if, if your state's one of the states that's supported they're they're adding more all the time they're still working on some of those ones that they got left, but um, I have been—I have no complaints about my services with River. I have loved using them. Yeah, and this just—I just wanted to mention a few things about this chart here, because um, you know I love charts. Uh, so this chart about a year ago looked about opposite as far mm -hmm. as the color. The 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 orange, if you're not uh, understanding here, is the ones that they are offered in. And last year it was basically like the opposite. And one of the reasons why this takes so long for them uh, is because some of the other exchanges, they use like uh, third party um, uh, custodians and, and providers. Um, they're doing everything themselves here at River. They're, they're building out all the infrastructure, all of the wallet architecture. I all think the, they're uh, actually getting banking licenses in each state, yes. right? Yeah. So it so takes, takes time to do time. those things. But, but they're doing it right. And they're doing it right in, in such and a way. Quickly. That, right. That, that you can, and keep in mind, this is a brokerage. They're not an exchange in the sense that, like, you're trading with a counterparty somewhere else on the exchange. You're you're buying and selling to and from them because they're yep. acting as the brokerage. So it's, can, it's a bit of a different product model. And you can buy like up to twenty five million dollars, like two hundred and fifty million. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> they've, been, they've been increased that again. Two hundred and fifty okay. million. And they also have an amazing like learning center with all sorts of like kind of beginner articles, but also getting into more of the uh, economics and technicals and stuff. So yeah, I think they put out a, a River Intelligence right there in the corner. They put out like a newsletter once a week yep. or once a month, and it's oh. it's pretty good. I've read it. Uh, Great way to yeah. pick up on some basics. Yes. So check them out, guys. You know you don't have to, but if you want to, use our link. You'll get a, a week free, uh, zero fees. Helps yeah, us out pretty, a little bit. It's easy to remember. It's river.com slash B-E-C. Bravo Echo Charlie. So anyway, now that we're done with the shill. Do, do you do you want to do this, Colin? Do you want to do hardware wallets? <laughs> I don't know, man. What do you think? Uh, I, I think we should do it next time. I think we should. Sure, uh, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a rabbit hole. Yeah. Okay, we have already gone in like an hour, huh? Well, not quite an hour because I was late, slow on the draw. So I had a conversation with my dad this morning. Okay, so there's two things. Um, I had a conversation with my dad this morning, and he said, so we're at the point now where Bitcoin is basically a household name. Like, even if people don't understand it and they don't know what it means, and, like, I had a conversation with a coworker last week who thought it, who talks about it like it's a stock. She's like, yes, I was going to buy stocks in Bitcoin a few years ago, um, which is just hilarious. My dad says, so Bitcoin is a household name, even if people don't understand it or don't necessarily know what it is. But Satoshi is like not even close. Like no one knows what a Satoshi is. But however, coming close into the near future, if not already, the average American will never interact with like a whole Bitcoin. It'll all be Satoshis. What, what are our plans? How are we going to meme Satoshi to the American lexicon? Well, you know, I, I brought up this chart, Colin, because... I think it's a good way to think about Bitcoin. Uh, and this chart was created, I think three three years ago almost at this point. 
so this little we are here thing should probably move, uh, you know, somewhere around here ish. Um, and to understand, like in, in 2017, by the way, uh, like there were a lot of Bitcoiners that were walking around, like trying to convince individual merchants, merchants to adopt Bitcoin. And I, I get this question all the time on like on Clubhouse. It's like, oh, like what if Amazon adopted, you know, Bitcoin for payments? Would that send Bitcoin to the moon? And I'm like, no, I think you're really looking at this the wrong way. This is what we should be watching, right? Like Bitcoin's acceptance in the market as a monetary asset. And then as it gets to become a monetary asset, eventually it gets to be a transactional medium. And once it gets to be a transactional medium, do you know how easy it is to adopt like lightning uh, and all these things? Like you just install it on a, it could be an old phone. You don't need to ship Verifone units to um, hundreds of thousands of businesses. Um, they can just install BTC pay server. And like t Tesla just did that recently. And, and yes, like that's cool that Tesla did it, but it's not Tesla adopting Bitcoin um, as as a like letting people pay in Bitcoin that's going to drive Bitcoin to the moon. Other than it de-risking Bitcoin and and it it kind of moving up on this chart as as Tesla does it, it's greater perceived safety, right? That's that's what that means. As they see Tesla do that as greater perceived safety. It's not getting us to widespread medium exchange. That comes. This comes when it is adopted as a monetary asset and people want to transact in it, right? Not only did Tesla. Uh, implement like their own in-house payments system I think probably built around BTC pay server they also pushed um, a PR I think to BTC pay server like an update yes. they fixed something I don't I don't remember exactly what it was yeah the uh, the understanding is that so it you know Tesla is implemented being able to pay in Bitcoin and they're also going to be holding the Bitcoin um, in some form or fashion. Um, and they needed a solution to be able to accept Bitcoin. The understanding is folks think that they took the open source code of BTC Pay Server and started adopting it and, and, and maybe adapting it to their own use. Um, but probably in doing that, they found some flaw or some some issue with it and they fixed it and then and then pushed that over to the team at BTC Pay Server. So it, they're probably not using a vanilla out of the box BTC Pay Server, but it sounds like they're using the underlying the underlying technology, uh, Colin. <laughs> you want to talk about alignment of incentives, folks? Like we're, we're watching one of the biggest companies in the world pushing updates to open, free and open source software that helps support the Bitcoin ecosystem because it's useful and valuable for them. And that's right here. Guys. Software eats the world. Greater custodial solutions, greater financialization, regulatory, regulatory clarity is coming. It, this chart is so awesome. I mean, I, I will give a shout out to Murad, even though he was a shitcoiner, and also because he was a trader and he lost a lot of money. Uh, Rip, Rip Murad, uh, I hope you come back someday. Uh, and his brother, Masir, who is awesome. I uh, love Masir, and I haven't seen him in a long time. Reach yeah. out to me, buddy. Talk, but Lots of respect for those guys. Yeah. Except, Credit uh, Marais decred shit. <laughs> except, except for the shit coining. But credit where it's due. Credit where it's due. I think this chart is insanely important to understanding Bitcoin and too few people know about it. <laughs> all right, um, man. I, I mean, I, I, got more, I got more charts and data, but I could do this all day. So <laughs> Right. Know. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I've got time if you want to keep going. So one thing that I did want to touch on um, that just sort of came up with this thread that I... <laughs> That I tweeted out last night that blew up. Um, do you do you remember the mass CEO exodus of 2019, and what do you oh, think yeah. it means? Man, um, I memory hold that man. There's a <laughs> there's a, I mean there's a lot of conspiracy we could go down. Like uh, you know, I, I it, it may have had to do like on a surface level. This is probably a really pedestrian kind of understanding of it, but like 2019, uh, there was like. A, a, a huge run up in the stock market was at all time high, and then like we had that liquidity event later. Well, the, um, don't forget the bond yield curve inverted in like the beginning of 2019, and that's what I was watching. Bond yield curve right. inverted, and we had extremely low unemployment. You know, like the the rumblings were coming that there was a big recession on its way, a big liquidity event, and then repo started melting down in like September, October, November. Like repo liquidity just completely seized up. The Fed stepped in with. QE, but not QE, right. right? And then, and then COVID came, and then suddenly everyone, the whole world, became focused on COVID, and we all just kind of thought, well, of course they need to print twenty trillion dollars. Um, <laughs> COVID is completely, of course, of course, 
COVID did this, of course. But this what was I'm coming. Saying- but the, all these CEOs were like, so why? Why did they all step down in 2019? Nobody could have seen this coming. <laughs> right, for sure. And and you can go that route. But I, I guess I was trying to say that maybe maybe the liquidity event is is related to all the CEOs exiting, right? Like you're a CEO, you have stock in a company. Maybe you maybe you get rid of the, some of that stock when you leave and then other you know other CEOs see other CEOs doing it and they know it's the top of this insane bull market that's going for 10 years since 2008 which was never fixed or anything like that. So maybe they just kind of looked around and said they saw the writing on the wall. They said Maybe we should get out of this. And other ones were like, hey, they're getting out. Let's get out too. And then like, that contributed to the liquidity event and then precipitated that's, the rest of the event. That's possible, man. But like, I don't know. I see, I see so much more happening um, in that time frame, and then like leading up until the repo crisis. And then even now, like post, you know, we're, we're still having a repo crisis right now. I don't know if you know, but like there was like a trillion dollars of repo like just yesterday. Maybe not yet, like two days ago or something like sometime this past week. Um, Monopoly I, I see so much more happening in the credit markets than in the equity markets in terms of what's moving and shaking oh, these I, these liquidity events. Just set a chart for that. Let's see if I can find it I mean, granted, I'm not saying that the equity markets don't aren't a factor, and and maybe your theory is is on the nose there about like CEOs stepping down and liquidating. But like in a lot of cases, those 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 um, corporates they have preferred shares. Um, that that you can't just like sell like you would shares in your Charles Schwab account. There's there's all sorts of filings and timelines and expiration dates and things like that on how and when and where those shares can be sold to the market. So you can't just be CEO of a company holding, you know, a million shares of preferred stock and and dump it the morning you leave. Find this. Uh... No, that's not what I'm looking for. I, I saw a chart today that was just saw lending like just drop off a cliff and, and not recover at all. You know, even despite all this insane amounts of liquidity injections, they've dropped the reserve ratio to zero. Um, they're trying to get people to lend to create more money. Most money today is printed uh, not at the Federal Reserve in a giant printer. It's printed at the commercial bank level, right? Through credit expansion. It's It can be a normal phenomenon, but not when you're manipulating all the other underlying factors like the uh, federal interest rate targeting and all these other things. But they can't convince people to either borrow money or lend money, right? And it's both. Like people don't want to borrow money today uh, and they don't want to lend money either. The institutions don't want to lend the money. Uh, and and that is, it, it's, it's this def- like inflation versus deflation that they're they're trying to push the inflation and they can't create it and this is exactly what happens in japan uh it, it's 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 this idea that the qe and all these other events don't do what they want it to do that the market is trying to liquidate the malinvestment it's trying to come back to reality and they they can't push it forever right like it eventually like reality sets in and people are like man maybe we shouldn't be lending in this environment right now it's like they're trying to push a cart full of mud and as they're going they're trying to like dig out the ruts and they're just filling the cart with more mud and it gets harder and harder to push as they go along trying to like dig out the ruts pretty soon that thing's gonna stop man like i don't know it's someone asked me the other day they were like how much longer do you think we have until this whole thing just collapses and i was like if you had asked me that question two years ago i probably would have told you that it would have already happened so and I, that's just me being honest. Like, I don't I don't know. I don't have an answer. And and there's nothing that says that Bitcoin can't deleverage this system before the the credit spreads blow out and, and everything just completely falls apart from there. Like the whole house of cards collapses. Um, there's nothing that says Bitcoin can't potentially deleverage the whole thing sort of more slowly before that happens. But I, I tend to think that that's kind of unlikely. Oh, um, here's here's one more just quick change of topic. Um, I don't know if you saw this chart on on Bitcoin's energy, how it's increasing and how I think it's actually going to boil the oceans. Did you see this one, Colin? No. <laughs> do, you see, do you see what it is? No, I was reading the chat. It's it's not a, it's not Bitcoin mining. It's data centers. Right. So like, where's where's the outrage over these data centers? They're taking up too much energy, folks. Well, that's not that's not a convenient political narrative. <laughs> 
How yeah. am I going to use that to agitate my followers? <laughs> I had to, somebody was arguing about energy, the energy use of Bitcoin. And I was like, okay, well, are you going to start policing, you know, Netflix usage, Christmas tree, or, or Christmas lights, um, you know, PC and, and, and console games and all these, uh, you know, air conditioning, Do, people are using air conditioning. It's a waste of energy, right? Like, man, that's a, I won't put myself in that position. When Connor oh. Brown tweets, I read it. Yeah. <laughs> Connor's the man. I love that guy. Yes, he is. So, uh, Tuxen, is that how you say it? Tuxen? Tucson. Tucson. Bitcoin says, I don't get why the banks don't want to lend, seeing as they have almost 100% insurance on these loans. So, mm. it's not that they don't want to lend. Because if they lend, they make money, right? That's, so, that's the problem in these repo markets, is that there is no liquidity. The liquidity is all spoken for. And that's why the Fed comes in with this QE, but not QE, liquidity injection. Because they're trying to grease the skids and get the system moving again. Because there's no liquidity available to meet that demand for overnight lending. Yeah, and, and he's talking about the implicit and explicit guarantees for these banks. And, and that is a thing. But they're still like a business that's supposed to try to like get a loan that's supposed to yield something. And the problem is no loans are yielding anything today because the whole economy is a zombie economy, right? So they're trying to lend into this uh, zombie economy and they, they, they know that most of these loans aren't good, right? That they're, that they're about to make. And that reflects in the repo rates. That's why those we saw that repo rates spike at some point is because there's not confidence in these institutions that they can make the money back to justify uh, these, these loans and stuff, right? And the Fed sets a target overnight lending rate. Um, the repo rate is basically the market's rate, but the Fed sets the target rate, um, which I believe is the federal funds rate. Is that right? Is that the inter-institutional right. inter right. lending rate? But that's exactly. just a target rate, and that's based on Fed tries to hit that target rate based on the policies that they set up. Um, and whenever you see the interest rates in overnight lending spike up like they have several times in the last couple of years, that's when the Fed steps in with like, says, okay, here you go. Here's a bunch of liquidity. Like, let's get this moving again. We don't want to be trading up here. We want to bring it back down here because they, they want to keep that lending going. Because if the, if the rates shoot up, the lending stops because there's nobody practically nobody that can meet that or or the lending has stopped down here and that's why the rates shoot up that's what ben was just saying and when the lending stops it's bad for the markets that's what happened in 2008 right so the lending stops liquidity dries up everyone has to pull back their loans to pay other things and uh then asset prices fall and we can't have the we can't have the wealthy people you know losing because again like if you don't understand this chart like this is this is the wealth of the of the uh, uh, the the most wealthy people, and it's all in the assets, right? Where is the oh, where's my asset one? Oh, here, boom! It's all in the assets. Um, so <laughs> they're they're losing all their wealth when asset prices fall because they're overinflated because they can't hold the dollars, and it's it's this this cat and mouse between inflation and deflation and and credit contraction that's trying to happen that we were talking about earlier. And you still see these horrendously bad takes from normies and socialists that try to say that inflation is a tax on the rich because the rich have more money and devaluing their money redistributes wealth to the poor. It is the exact opposite. Yeah, the, the, the extra money gets dumped into the assets, which are disproportionately held by the wealthy, right? Which make them which you know hyperinflate the value of those assets and just make the rich richer and the poor are the one who are ones who are more likely to be saving in cash or hold fewer assets or no assets and they are disproportionately that's why i call inflation a regressive tax yeah and i love this chart too because if you look at this chart um i think this one's a little bit better but um the 10k net worth okay this is a 10K net worth. Think about like people you know that have $10,000 total net worth to their name, okay? Um, the, part of it's in their primus, primary residence. Most of the people I know that are worth 10K don't even have a house, right? They rent. Um, and their vehicle is, yeah, maybe that's about right, right? Um, and then the, the liquid, liquid cash is like, uh, what is that? Maybe 8% of that, right? I think that this liquid cash is a much larger number for a lot of poor folks. And, and that's what's getting inflated. And, and the point of this chart and why I always bring it up is that 
This, I think this green thing is much larger and that's the part that's getting inflated. That's the part of your net worth that's getting inflated away. It's totally so, larger, especially for millennials. Like think about yeah. most millennials, they don't even have a primary residence. They just rent or they live right. at home and they're right. not getting any capturing any asset inflation in he, and, he, and you don't capture any asset inflation in your vehicle you don't capture any asset inflation if you don't own a home you know what, what are you capturing asset inflation in your shitty one thousand dollar robin hood portfolio and and this little green line here is the amount of the percentage of the wealth of a very rich person that gets inflated away from inflation this percentage gets increased by inflation <laughs> This the system benefits the the richer you are, the larger percentage of your wealth you can keep in these assets, and the more you benefit. Not just like you don't lose to inflation, you actually benefit disproportionately. Right? Benefit the more assets you can have, like because if if all of if your cash flow is already covering your extravagant lifestyle, and you have all of this extra capital that you can just dump into assets. And particularly, you know, the, the more of a cantillionaire you are or the higher up you are on this hierarchy, the more you have access to the prefer the preferred financial instruments that generate the most alpha um, against inflation. Colin, yeah, the, the chat says, like Chamath, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> Moron. Can't stand that guy. You guys should boycott the conference that he's going to be at in Miami. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going. I'm not paying. I'm not paying that dude's salary. I thought about just going to, like, hang out at the after parties, but I'm not, I'm not supporting. Yeah. Shamath. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. This is a good one. I, people wanted me to talk about the JW thing. I, I just don't oh. think that there's enough time, because we don't want to yeah. go too much over an hour. That's kind of been a nice agreement. We can, uh, we can make an agreement to. Well, I mean, we can go into it. I don't, I don't have anything to do right at this minute. Um, I mean, I will say that, like, briefly. my opinions on the matter like go read the article that i wrote on bitcoinechochamber.com i wrote it like i don't remember how long ago a few months ago my my thoughts haven't really changed if you want to know like how i think about it um i think i think the behavior in general is childish like in the way bitcoiners approach security in general uh, i think there's a lot of mudslinging and i have generally no use for it and it makes me pretty upset so uh that's that's probably about all I'll say for that for now. We'll probably get more into it maybe next weekend. Yeah, I'm good with that. All right. Uh, anything else you want to mention? I don't think so. <laughs> Me neither. Do we have like a send off? No, we need we need to invent one. Yeah, I know. We need an <laughs> outro. All right, I'll, I'll. guys, we're gonna get like some some graphics and maybe like a price ticker or, or something. Eventually, I just haven't done it yet because I'm all over the place and my life is a disaster. And uh, Ben is the only one in this relationship that's put together. So we will oh, no. <laughs> we will hopefully be back next weekend, same time. Same Bitcoin time in Moscow, same Bitcoin channel. This is your echo chamber. <laughs> how, do I, how do I stop? Oh, man, uh -huh. I forgot to record. Dang it. <laughs>